This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. And this is Safe Space, a show that is devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, we'll be talking about the subject of women's sexuality. My guest tonight is Judith Black, and we will be talking about her show, That Fading Scent, and about postmenopausal women's sexuality in general. Welcome, Judith. Hello, Anne. So glad you're here. Judith is a creator and teller of stories, has been for 30 years. She has a background in theater, early childhood development, political activism, all of which she brings into her stories. She's also received national storytelling awards, including the Oracle Circle of Excellence Award. So glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. So I wanted to start out by asking you, how did you decide to do a show about aging and women's sexuality? Well, you don't make choices. If, if you continue to age in life, then that's where you are. And I never thought that hitting menopause would be any big deal. You know, if I figured if you weren't hot as a 25 or 30-year-old, then losing, your, losing what you didn't have, what was the big deal? <laughs> and then at 50, this thing happened. Um, it, it, I felt like a jungle disease. And I believe that going to a Western medical practitioner is a little bit like putting your money in a one-armed bandit in Vegas. So, of course, I didn't go to my doctor. I tried acupuncture, Ayurveda, meditation, herbs. But after three months, I was still sick as a dog. Sick as a dog with a jungle fever, meaning what, you were hot and sweaty all the time? Well, I didn't know what it was. It was nothing I had ever had before. Mm -hmm. So I finally make an appointment, and I go in to see the doctor. And it's like, doctor, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have I have the ambition level of an alcoholic locked into a liquor store. I greet the day with the joy of a vampire. I cry all the time. I cry when I see sad children, little kitties, Dick Cheney. Well, let's face it, everyone cries when they see Dick Cheney. But my doctor, he looks at me. Now, he doesn't say, put on the ugly green Johnny or let me take some blood. He says, I know what that is. I can prescribe something. Oh, my God. I've been going to the most brilliant diagnostician in the Western world, and I've waited three months. What's wrong with me, doctor? Well, you're depressed. I can give you something for that. Oh. Depressed? Now, here's the thing, Anne. I shouldn't have been depressed by every measurement. The kid had come out of adolescence and was a mensch, a real human being. I have a wonderful husband, great work. I'm depressed? Yes, yes, don't worry. I can prescribe something. Do you organic garden? I do. Okay. So if you have an invasive taproot, do you throw junk on it or do you pull it out? You pull it out. Of course. So this was my humble role model when I innocently asked him, well, shouldn't we figure out why I'm depressed? And this whippersnapper who had to be about 32 actually pats me on the hand and says, no, no, all women your age go through this. Just let me prescribe something. Wow. Well, as a child of the 60s, I believe profoundly that drugs are for recreation, not maintenance. (laughs) So I prescribed something for myself, a new Western medical practitioner, and decided I'd better start to carefully observe a life that was leaving me in this state. And that's where the show began to develop out of. Uh Uh-huh. As you carefully... No, did you know you were going through menopause? I mean, that word hasn't gotten mentioned yet. Well... I hadn't put it together because, of course, I was going through menopause. But 
I didn't understand how profound the ramifications were. Mm-hmm. That menopause is not just about losing your estrogen. It's about losing your hot. Mm-hmm. And even if you're, I mean, this, this is the thing that, that utterly blew me away. Even if you're not a cover girl for something, you know, even if you're not the kind of woman who walked in a room and conversation stopped, your sexuality is so profound and so subtle I didn't get it until it wasn't there that it's the thing that got me waited on at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Tell me about that. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) You know, all of a sudden you're waiting in these long lines. Tickets you used to be able to get out of, you know, by flirting with the nice policeman. You're suddenly paying $150 tickets. Um, Mm -hmm. Your car's not ready on time. Nobody talks to you at parties for 30-year-olds. I mean, and all of these things happen. You just don't have your pheromones anymore. They're not letting out those little beep, 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 and attracting people. And you don't realize how important they were until they're not there. It sounds like really intense disempowerment. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Have you gone through this yet? I haven't. Uh. <laughs> but it sounds like you become almost invisible. Or like, it's like you don't matter in some way. You know, way. one of the titles for this show was Invisible, you know, as I ran through it. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was... Yeah. And so when you say you lose your hot... You know, I've had the pleasure of seeing your show, at least in a former iteration, and absolutely loved it. And a lot of it was about how people treat you differently because they don't register your desirability or sexuality. What about the hot that comes from inside in the sense of your hot for other people? What about desire? Oh, what a wonderful question. Desire is always there. I mean, I'll be walking down the street with a friend who's 65 or 70, and we'll see a hottie, an adorable guy, and we'll both go, Aha, uh-huh. okay, so you did not experience menopause as a time of losing that. No. I mean, here's the thing. Your sexuality definitely changes, but it doesn't disappear. Mm-hmm. It goes to another place. Okay, tell me about that other place, the well, one other, who's visited it. <laughs> that other place certainly is not on the radar of beer manufacturers. <laughs> uh, right, right. It doesn't involve tight T-shirts, right? Right. No, that, that other place, I mean, this is where it's very nice to have a life partner mm-hmm. because you no longer have that attractiveness, you know, of, of the pheromones and the tight parts and the whole thing. But I think we're sexual beings until we die. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to, I dragged my husband to go see Menopause the Musical because I thought there might be some interesting material that would relate. Sure. It was, it was pretty dumb. But the funniest piece in it was the four women singing about their vibrators. Oh, really? <laughs> which, which becomes an absolutely brilliant option for postmenopausal women. Hannah, uh, why isn't it an option for all women? Oh, it's, of course, an option for all women. Please help. <laughs> but what do you, let me put it another way. I mean, why is it more of an option for postmenopausal women? Oh, because intercourse is not as comfortable as it was. Okay, there we go. I mean, you, you simply are, are not producing um, the, the kinds of, of liquids and lubricants down there that, yeah. that would make it as much fun as it was. I see. But okay. you're still sexual. So yeah. things just sort of shift. Yeah. So one of the things that you also uh, really explore in the show that I'd love to hear you talk about, you do this kind of cross-cultural rendition of the Snow White story from three different parts of the world. Only this time you're telling it from the standpoint of the evil stepmother and about the changes that she goes through in her aging sexuality. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, 
as a storyteller, whenever you go through a stage in your life, you look for ancient wisdom to guide you. And mm. fairy and folktales really have that. And so when I realized, oh, this is menopause that's causing depression, I went back to that wonderful panoply of folklore and fairy tales. And the only major story, and I mean major, i.e. resonates in cultures all over the world, that featured a woman of my age was Snow White. And in it, it's a woman at the far end of her sexual power, takes a look at her daughter coming into it, becomes homicidally jealous, hires some guy to kill her, bring back one of her vital organs, salts it, and eats it. Mm. And I'm thinking, gosh, yuck. Right. No, thank you. <laughs> Is there a better way to do this? <laughs> there must be. And I, and I read, I mean, there are variants, Snow White variants from all, interestingly, from all over the world, but I found none from Asia. And mm. I wondered if it's a culture that honors aging. And mm. so the women there don't panic when mm. they get past this age. They don't think that their role or their lives or their personhood is going to be minimalized. Just a thought. But, I mean, there were three versions from Italy. They were from Germany. They were from Norway. They were from the Celtic lands. They were from Armenia. They were from Disneyland, Germany. I mean, everywhere else had a version mm. of Snow White. And in, in all of them, it is about the aging woman looking at the daughter coming of age. But, of course, the versions that we read were all written down by men. Mm -hmm. And men are really hardwired to go for the young, newly sexualized female. That's mm. how we procreate. Right. You know, and if you get angry at your husband for looking at a tuchus walking down the road, it's going to be a short marriage. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how they're hardwired. Uh -huh. Um. But I thought, ew, there's got to be a better option for aging women. So I dove into three of the stories, one from West Africa, um, another one that was Celtic, and then a third, West Africa, Celtic, don't tell me, and Italian, because there were so many options. Yes. And retold the story from the vantage point of Snow White's mother. Yes. And discovered in each of these stories that the women... We're not homicidally jealous. Of course, there is always that little ring of jealousy. I mean, the fact that this story resonates through every major culture says, I'm on the way to losing something that is fundamental in my personal identity, and you're coming into it. Of course I'm jealous. Right. But it doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, that you hire someone to go off and kill her. Right. You just acknowledge that feeling. And yeah. in these stories, each of these women not only acknowledge that feeling, they lived in worlds of predatory, sexualized men, and they saw that their daughters um, were, were being hounded by these men, and they wanted to protect them. Because please, look at it. Look at it this way. What kind of woman coerces, commissions, or cajoles a man to do things like take the girl out and bring back her lungs or her liver or her heart or her kidney or her fingers or her eyeballs or jars of her blood or her cloak soaked with her blood. Act so awful and evil, so hideous and heinous, so gory and grim. Well, you get my meaning. I do. But of course, these guys don't hurt a hair on the girl's head. Right. The mothers wanted these men to get the girls away from their world of predatory males. And they did just that by terrorizing them. And the girls each were put in safe places. Uh -huh. So it's a radical retelling that, in fact, her primary instinct is to protect the girl with her budding sexuality. Exactly. Not to kill her off or no. punish her. It feels her so much tr yeah. truer to life. It, 
when I when I saw it, I just thought, yes, of course, of course. So maligned and so misunderstood, this evil stepmother. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, here's the joke of it. The only place she was an evil stepmother, even in the grim original version, it was the mother. In every oh. other version, it's the mother. Uh-huh. The reason the, the Grimm brothers turned it into a stepmother is that people were so uncomfortable with that feeling oh. and the honesty of it. They said to them, this couldn't happen. This couldn't be true. Oh, my, we're not reading this story. We're not giving it to her. So they, they made it into a stepmother. Because it was so shameful yeah. to feel jealous of one's own one's daughter's beauty. Yeah. Yes, that makes so much sense. It happens with men, too, when they see their adolescent boys butting into their muscle. Yes. Yes, and yet we have so little room to acknowledge these feelings, yeah. to make them safe. And the story is so not told from her perspective. It's really profound. Yeah. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Judith Black, storyteller about postmenopausal women's sexuality and how the myth of Snow White so captures this silent aspect of not just losing the hot, as you call it, but but m- mourning it and and feeling jealous of others who still have it and then wanting to protect the young ones. Mm. It really makes so much sense to me. Um, so how, how are audiences responding to this? Do you feel like, is there, do people get it? Do people talk about it afterwards? Oh, goodness. I mean, there was so much laughter in that theater. Yeah. You know, during those funny moments. And what you love, as a performer, is hearing the intake of air around self-knowledge. Yeah. You know, like you hit a line and people go, oh! Yeah, like, oh, you got me! Right, like there's, there's an original fairy tale. Since there are no fairy tales out there, I had to make one up. You know, it's about a woman named Marjorie whose youngest child has just left the house and a cloud forms over her head. And mm-hmm. it's a literal cloud. It's a cloud about a foot and a half above her that just oh, opens up and rains. And she can't go out of the house. Everything starts to smell of mildew. She and her husband have cruised Google and can't find it anywhere. (laughs) And it takes three magical women to take her away and help her figure out how to get rid of this cloud. I mean, and how to do it was to rediscover who she was without her children and without that role. Um, Now, of course, my mother warned me this would happen. She said, someday you're going to forget the beginning of your sentences by the end. But this came out of the question you had. (laughs) I don't think I remember the question either. (laughs) Your mother always turns out to be right. It's just a terrifying thing. A terrifying thing. So so in in, in this story, in Marjorie, she creates her own life. She looks at who she was that wasn't completely fulfilled. She looks at who she wants to be. Oh, I know. It's that sigh of recognition. Yes. So when she is discovering how she, a radical graduate student feminist, ended up as the mother of three and a wife in Newton Highlands, yes, she said, I could not believe that me, a, a woman whose, whose radical politics fell between Bella Abzug and Charlotte Smith Firestone, mm-hmm. found herself deeply, inextricably, passionately in love with the process of bearing and raising my children. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you hear people. And you hear so many of your peers that did just fall in love with that. Yeah. And then they're gone. Yes. And it's not a small thing. You have a lot of life. And it feels very hollow about them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you know, people joke about it. Oh, you have so much time. You spent most of your life nurturing beings that you loved. And it just doesn't translate out of that very, you know, like in a snap. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're really, at this point, you're beyond exploring the loss of hot. We're really talking about your whole sense of identity. I think they all go together. Huh. How do you link those two things? Um, well, resexualizing your relationship with your husband. I mean, after you've raised three children, yeah, things get pretty... Um, compartmentalized. Yeah. <laughs> That's one word for it. <laughs> but, honey, it's our Sunday morning date time. The kids are all in church school. You know, whatever. <laughs> um, so part of it is rediscovering because his sexuality is changing too. Right. And it's, I mean, as hard as it is for us, I think it's much harder for men. Hmm. Um, oh. And what do you think so? What makes you say that? Well, because virility, as much as, much as a figure... And being pretty is important to a girl. Virility is equated with, with your masculinity and your success in this world. Yeah, yeah. And for men, it's so obvious. Right. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't be taking these potentially heart attack raising drugs. Mm-hmm. I remember asking a friend why he wanted to take those. He's my friend who's, who's 65. And I said, why would you take something, you know, to, to extend the life of something that your body is... is getting tired of doing (laughs) (laughs) and he said to me i remember it as being so wonderful and i want that wonderful back right so part of the job especially of the last story in this piece called queen crone is creating a new wonderful Mm -hmm. you know because we're not 25 or 30 anymore you don't have the libido and you don't have the capabilities but this wonderful character, Queen Crone, she's a, a superheroine, something between Marvel comic books and Mount Olympus. And her job is, I will quote her, to make it okay to grow old. Yes. And she takes on pharmaceutical companies, and she takes on Estrogena, the evil octogenarian sex goddess. And I mean, she's hysterical. <laughs> and there's this flashback story in which she tells about her own deep love relationship with her second husband. His name is Irving. I don't think we do not have time for me to tell you a lot of this story. Okay. So I'll cut straight to the chase. All right. She, she met Irving in middle age. They had an incredible sex life and just, he brought her such joy. And then he's 62 years old. And that's when he takes his first attack of the heart. Hmm. Uh, they give him this little yellow pill and it turned my jaguar into a pussycat. Ah, he was so miserable. Oh, he, he bought one of those pumps. That These were in the days before the Viagra. It turned our wild kingdom into this old house. It was a pot. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you the truth. I was a bad wife. I didn't notice how depressed he was hmm. because I was going through the change. And when you're going through it, you want the sex about as much as you want the bagel without the lox and cream cheese. <laughs> but it changes after you want But darling, let me tell you, never again will you be like a thirsty person finding water in the desert. Those days are gone. You want the sex more like you order a nice Shiraz with an occasional dinner out, you know? But when I'm ready, my Irving, Seigesund, he's telling these impotence jokes. And he's sleeping in Daniel and Benjamin, my son's room. And one day he comes into the kitchen after dinner and he looks at me and he says, divorce me. Divorce me, find a man whose parts work. 
I owing. Owing for five dollars, I can go down to the drugstore and buy something that can do what that thing down there does for me. Mm. But who, who would ever know to give my Benjamin the book, The Life of Billy Mays? Listen, we all change. And the truth is, your Jaguar doesn't feel all that good in my parking lot anymore. <laughs> but if I don't touch and get touched soon, I'm going to forget what it's like to be a human being. Mm. So I start to play with his neck, put my fingers in his hair, what's left of it, and I can feel his pearl coming back in. And darling, this I can tell you, my Irving and I, we were lovers all our days. Hmm. Oh, Judith. <laughs> so moving to hear it. I feel like if we weren't on the radio, I would be silent. Just mm. hold that silence to honor, honor the beauty of what you just said. It's really very powerful. Her love to pull them both out of their sense of deficit into what they could celebrate together. Mm -hmm. I think that for so many, that passage is very fraught. Yeah. And many don't make it to the other side of that, finding a new way to be lovers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wonder for you to be able to tell this story, you know, how, how, what do you, what would you w wish for that could help people make that passage? What do you think it is that that would help people do that? You know, in my culture, we have bar mitzvah, and it bar and bat mitzvah welcome you into your adult state. I wonder if there isn't some ritual that we would have that would celebrate our moving into this last stage of life. Mm, what a great idea. So that it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. You know, you're not raising children anymore. When the police call, it's not about your adolescent. It's for a donation. I mean, there are <laughs> wonderful things about this last phase of life. <laughs> you don't have to come down to the police station to pick up your son. No. Right. What a relief. <laughs> you know, and it is a time to be generative, mm. you know, to give back. All the things you've been working like a pooch all your life. And being generative is just wicked fun. Yeah. You know, I think from my sense of it is that people feel shame. It's shame that really makes it so hard, both the man and his inability to sustain an erection or the woman and her lack of desire, her or the pain of it, feeling that something wrong with her, yeah. that she isn't wanting it. And that shame is so awful, so unbearable. What a waste of time. That we don't, we don't, we avoid. Yeah. So we just avoid. And in avoiding you know, it's like Irving sleeping in Benjamin's bedroom in your story. Yeah. Uh, we don't we don't find our way through it to what really can be celebrated on the other side. It's it's very powerful. You know, there's a there's a a family therapist by the name of David Schnarch, mm -hmm. and uh, he he his thesis is that the best sex of all is in one's fifties and sixties when we've worked through kind of our, our, diff, our own baggage and our capacity to be intimate and loving. You mean when we stop holding our stomachs in during the act? <laughs> <laughs> that and so many other things, Judith, yes. 
<laughs> yes, because let's face it, that interferes. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to contract one muscle and keep one loose. You know? <laughs> Isn't it? Have such a hard time with orgasm. <laughs> It's just too many things to think about. Right. It's overwhelming. <laughs> That's so great. So your idea about a rite of passage, I think it also addresses the issue of shame too, because it makes something, it it makes it sacred. It make mm. it honors it, and I think that is a great antidote to shame, is to really recognize the power and beauty of something as opposed to the deficit. I mean, and the other thing to do is to look at cultures. In, in which elders are honored. So, for yeah. instance, I was working down at Disney Institute once, and one of the guys I was working with um, was one of the people who got Viagra kind of on the market. And he sold, you know, no, easy sell in America, easy sell in Europe. Suddenly, he's in the Southeast Asian market, and he's in Japan, and no one's buying and they have this ad with the husband and wife dancing, and wouldn't you like to be able to finish the evening, blah, 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 however they do it in America. Yep. And no one's buying, no one's buying, no one's buying. They didn't understand the culture. You know, and, and evidently, one, a lot of the men of the class that could afford it, I, this is what he explained to me, a lot of the men of the class who could afford it, they really didn't have sex with their wives anymore, which was, I thought, oh, how sad. So they looked at it, and the ad didn't seem to have any application to them. Oh, my goodness. But in the Philippines, older women have the best time. Okay, so I'm researching menopause. Women post-menopause in the Philippines are, like, the happiest demographic there is. <laughs> really? They're honored in the culture. They don't have to work as hard as they did. They're not raising children, and they are out having a great time. Hmm. And interestingly, they don't have any of those menopausal symptoms that we do. And what about their sexuality? I didn't, you know, these books did not talk about that. Well, this is a key detail. Yeah, <laughs> but they seemed happy. <laughs> yeah, right. They were very fulfilled in other ways. Yeah. That's fascinating. I imagine that's probably true in many other countries as well. Hmm. Uh huh. And it makes me wonder, in Japan, so if the, if the men who had the wealth to afford Viagra were having sex with there with other younger women presumably yeah what i wonder what the older woman's story is in japan let's hope one of your listeners will will let you know either that or you, we need to get you a grant judith to go over there and, and interview these that. women <laughs> oh postmenopausal sex research i would love that yeah no kidding that sounds really great so we just have a few more minutes uh, before we have to wrap up and i know i want to talk just a little bit concretely about the show which is that it's coming up on um, March 12th, 13th, and 14th in Salem at the Griffin Theater. Mm -hmm. And I know the first show is a fundraiser. I wondered if you wanted to tell us a little bit about that. HealthLink is a wonderful grassroots environmental organization that started right here in Marblehead when a lot of people were at a friend's funeral. This was about 20 years ago. She died of breast cancer, and there was no reason on earth this woman should have died from breast cancer. None of her demographic um, none of her personal or genetic background would have led us to think that she should have gotten it. And a lot of women got together and said, let's do some homework on this. And that's when they realized that the power plant, the Salem power plant across the harbor, was spewing cadmium, fly ash, lead, mm. um, mercury. I mean, all sorts of carcinogens, and they were coming right into town. We have a one in five breast cancer rate here. 
and it is because of that plant, because this organization has gotten the town to start to maintain all public grounds organically, has made people very aware of um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals in every aspect of our culture. I mean, people are pretty cancer-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's trying to put enough pressure to get them to clean up or, better yet, close down this ancient power plant. So this organization's commitment is to educate and make a healthier world for us, and it's just great. So that's what we're raising money for on the Thursday night. That's so great. And if people want to get tickets, Judith, how do they? They can call this number. Yes, get your pencil poised. <laughs> Nine. Seven eight three one seven one one six nine. Great. And if people want to find out more about your work or see other performances of yours, maybe you could give people your website. Oh, you can pop into my website. It's storiesalive.com. S-T-O-R-I-E-S-A-L-I-V-E. Do and the theater is right in the middle of town, so there are all sorts of cute restaurants around. Great. Judith, it is such a pleasure to talk to you about this subject and to hear your voices and animation. Thank you so much. Oh, and thank you for doing this show. Okay. Wonderful to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks to Jen Hodsden for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for the show, email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 730, I'll be hosting a show about uh, aging and women's sexuality in terms of the pelvic floor pain with sex, incontinence, and other related issues. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.